Well, it's, it's been my privilege and my passion over the last um, 20-something years to preach and teach God's Word. And, um, you know, I, I've always been fascinated with the study and the history of Scripture and the meaning of it and the interpretation of it. And so the goal in these lessons, and many of you have told me that you're the, uh, you know, we, 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 go, we call this group a lot of different names. We call you the History Channel crowd. We call you the uh, AP, the Advanced Placement class. Um, so I'm really going to test that tonight. But I get kind of excited about this nerdy stuff that I'm going to tell you about tonight. But, but here's why. Not just because it's nerdy stuff, but because... When you study Scripture and you study the history of how we got Scripture, it makes you appreciate what we often take for granted, and that is the availability of the Bible, and that it's in a language that we can understand. And I think as you look into the history of it, you, you begin to see that, that uh, the Word of God is something that is, is freely shared with others. And it's, it's affected, it, it, it's transformed the history of the world and it even shapes our own English language, and that's for some um, future lessons. But the title of this lesson is, Every Tongue Will Confess, and that comes from Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. I'm going to put a little mini-sermonette in here. Uh, that was redundant, mini-sermonette. Never really did understand what a sermonette was. Uh, it's either a short sermon or a sermon for women. But anyway, the... Um, uh, it's usually what et does to something. Philippians 2.9 is part of that hymn that, 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 that Paul um, shares with the Philippian church describing the mindset of Christ. And, and, he, and he tells the story in a nutshell of the gospel that Jesus humbles himself. But then God exalts him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It means that one way or another, everyone will bow down and show reverence, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the absolute supreme ruler. There will be no question about it. That's, that's the intent. That's the goal. One of the things I want to encourage you with is this. You hear a lot of talk about God, you know, you hear about other countries getting involved in our politics and with the election this Tuesday and them trying to manipulate it. Okay, what really mystifies me is that people say that God gets involved in it. And I was uh, traveling somewhere this summer and I saw a sign endorsing one of the candidates and I'll let you guess which one. And I was like, my goodness, you know, that's a mighty bold claim. You know, has anybody asked the Almighty if he really signed off on this one? And I've been thinking about that ever since and I've realized... God gave us the only ruler that we'll ever need when he exalted Christ. And that position is not open for re-election. So you and I have got the best ruler that we will ever have in Jesus Christ. And that's going to be true this Tuesday. That's going to be true on Wednesday. That's going to be true for eternity. So I like that endorsement from God, that God has exalted Jesus Christ. And everyone is, and the gospel is everyone coming to the realization that he truly is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. This idea that every tongue will confess not only refers to everyone 
on their own confessing this. But tongues are also what we use to describe languages. You know, if you ever look, um, I mean, this is fitting with our missions emphasis this month. Um, You'll see things where people have translated John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And, uh, or you'll see phrases like Jesus is Lord, and it'll be translated into every language imaginable. And that's, that's possible. That's doable. That's meaningful. Any language is able to express that confession. But our scripture begins with two languages. It has an origin. Uh, the first scriptures written are written in Hebrew. Uh, there are some Aramaic sections of the Old Testament, but it's Hebrew. It's, it's, it's that language, the language of God's people that the first scriptures are written in. That's not because Hebrew is some special language compared to other, uh, any other languages. That's just the language of the people. Now, when those people started to adopt the languages of other cultures, and there was a time period about mm, 300 or so years before uh, the birth of Christ, the people of God are actually better and more, they're more, it's more common for them to speak Greek than Hebrew. So they take their tr- scripture and they translate it. Now, some believe that that shouldn't be done, but others freely make that translation. There's even legends about that translation uh, that it's done by you know, 70 people in 70 days and it's a perfect translation but it just goes to show you that whatever language the people are using the scriptures follow and they're communicated in some way that that can be understood by others when the new testament is being written it's naturally being done in greek because that's the common language you and i use the expression it's greek to me meaning that i don't understand Okay, that's Greek to me. I really am curious about where that phrase came from, and that's one of the things I'm going to look up. You know, why do people say that? In the first century, Greek would have meant, that that, that sentence would have made no sense. Greek would have been the common language that everybody spoke. So if it was in Greek, that means most people can understand it. It's kind of a universal language. The type of Greek that your New Testament, uh, Greek, is written in is is what's called koine greek and uh, i remember hearing about that before i i went into studies and it was like oh that koine was kind of a magical greek you know and i don't know where these ideas came from that's not the case at all koine means common everyday simple greek it's street greek you know and and then but now you would have classical greek that maybe it was a little loftier and uh, most languages have, you know, a, a, a higher form, a more professional form, and, and then you have just an ordinary, everyday way of speaking it, kind of the, the everyday dialect. That's what the scriptures, think about it, the holy scriptures of God are being written in the ordinary common Greek. I think that's significant because the purpose is not to somehow make these magical texts but to get the message out so that it can be communicated. Um, and then Christianity, in its, in its early days, as it begins to spread and it takes off, and, and you can read in Acts where there are movements of the people, and Jesus says in Acts 1, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, 
Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's an expansion from that center in Jerusalem where the gospel events take place. And then it moves out to the region. And then it moves out to the ends of the earth. So that when you get to Acts 8, you read the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And he takes that gospel message back. Larry mentioned it this morning in the, um, in the communion devotional that um, somebody had to help that man understand Isaiah 53. And it was Philip. Ethiopia would have been a, was, was commonly regarded in the first century as the ends of the earth. Its ancient name is Abyssinia, meaning that it was on the edge of the abyss. It was considered a faraway place. So it's not accidental that this Ethiopian man hears the gospel about Jesus, and the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. So you have cultures that are out there on the fringes. When, when Paul and Barnabas are uh, appointed to take the gospel into other regions, um, from Acts 13 and on, there's uh, one story where they get detoured a bit, and they have to go up into the north country of, um, ah, the name's escaping me right now, Dur- I think it's Derby and Lystra, and, and they mistake them for, um, for uh, uh, Zeus and Mercury. And, um, and then it says they start uttering things in their own dialects. I mean, they revert to their, you know, to their, their rural languages, and so people with other languages and other places who, who, who have no concept are hearing about this gospel. And so the earliest versions of, of Scripture outside of Greek, there, there's a translation process that starts to take place over the next 400 years. It's really the work of missionaries. It's being done because people are spreading and sharing the gospel. And this is good for us. Because some of these translations from that early period in these other languages are older than our oldest surviving Greek manuscripts. So think about it like this. Scriptures come to us in in Greek. The originals are written, the New Testament at least, are written in Greek. And then there's a copying process. People have to copy this by hand. And like we talked about a few weeks ago, Paul said, after you've let, read this letter, you share the letter to the Laodiceans and, and vice versa. And so there's a process where people are sharing these manuscripts. And so they're going to be copying them by hand, and they're copying them in Greek. Now, of all of those Greek copies that are out there, we have a few of them existing, but, but not from that time period, from a later time period. But meanwhile, there were some people who were copying those Greek Uh, scriptures into other languages and some of those exist and they're at a much closer level to the original than the than some of the greek manuscripts we have this helps us this helps us to understand that we've got reliable scriptures and the the early languages uh, where you see this and these are the ones these six are, are very interesting you've got syriac coptic ethiopic armenian georgian and latin What's that mean? Well, let's take a look at each one real quick. I told you I'm going to be testing you tonight, but this stuff I find kind of fascinating. Syriac. You, I mean, Syria is in the news now. When I've done this lesson before, um, people are you know, asking, where's Syria? Well, sadly, we know where Syria is now because of the uh, uh, 
you know, the terrible things that are happening there. But that's an ancient place, and it's an ancient land, and there's cultures that have been there for thousands of years. Uh, Acts 11, verse 26, mentions a town called Antioch, which is in Syria. So you've got this very um, uh, cosmopolitan area. It's a melting pot in the first and second centuries. But there are rural areas around it. And so the Christianity is growing in Antioch. You'll remember that uh, uh, you know, the name Christian is coined because you've got Gentile people who are following Christ. You don't call Jewish people following Christ Christian. They're just the people of God, the children of Abraham. They've just accepted Jesus as their Messiah. But what about these people who come from a different branch? Well, they, they come up with the name Christian, meaning, you know, little Christs. They're imitators of Christ. So you have these people who are not as conversant in, in Greek. And so there's an early effort to translate scriptures into this rural Syriac language. Okay, if you've ever traveled to places um, outside the United States, you may have gone to places where there are many languages spoken. Uh, three years ago when we were in Ethiopia, um, they had a little Bible study with their preacher training school right there. There's maybe a dozen of us uh, in that room. But there were something like two dozen languages represented if you counted all the languages that everybody spoke. Um, the official language of Ethiopia is Amharic. But there are all these different tribal and regional languages spoken. So sometimes when you're preaching in Ethiopia, you are two languages away from what's being preached, and you have no control over it. I mean, I'm preaching in English. My translator is translating from English to Amharic. The Amharic is going to another translator who takes Amharic to whatever regional language is being used. And sometimes it's interesting to watch the two translators work on what I just said, and uh, they're debating it back and forth, and then by the time it gets out to everybody else and there's laughter, you don't know what you've just said. But you trust that, you know, the word is being preached. And this same thing is going on, because in that region you have the common language, but then you have rural people who only speak a few languages. Um, some of you who've heard us talk about um, Ethiopia, you, you may have heard of the name Alamayu. His daughter, uh, Ficker, was here, uh, the, and she's, she's going to school in, in, um, at OC. And uh, I remember one moment where I'm in the front of the Jeep with Alamayu. Now, Alamayu can speak English, and he can speak Amharic. And behind us are three fellows who speak the Oromo language, and only one of them speaks Amharic. Well, they start talking to each other in the Oromo language, just back and forth, just talking about all kinds of stuff. And I turned to Alamayu, and I said, what are they saying? He says, I haven't got a clue. And, uh, you know, he, so we speak in English. But that just shows you how you can be so close but so different in thought because of your language. So there's an early effort. People say, why not? The evangelism in that country starts to translate language into Syriac. It, it becomes so popular that by the year 100, now think about that. I mean, the New Testament has barely been completed, but by the year 100, the entire Old Testament has been translated into Syriac. That's quite an undertaking it probably took it probably started 
even before the Christian era as there were Jewish people who would have spoken Syriac. You remember there's all those different languages on the day of Pentecost. But eventually we get a standard translation, and this is what happens when translations. First, everybody's out there kind of workshopping it, you know, coming up with a translation, and then at some point everybody has to agree and say, well, what's the best single translation that we can work out of? Um, some of our um, um, Lao brothers were working on this. I think Thomas Quickle was working on a translation because, and I remember him telling me about this um, before his death. He was saying he was working on this translation, and I said, "Are there not already Lao translations?" He said, "Yes, but some of them aren't very good." And so he was doing his part to add to the Lao translations of Scripture. Um, you have a Syriac translation that's well known. People study it now. It's called the uh, Pesheta, and that name means the simple translation. The whole point of the translation was, this is the best translation because it's easy to read. It's simple. And we've got something like 350 copies of that, and they're all consistent. It shows you that the goal of the translators was making sure that this scripture would be known. Now, right around this same time, you've got uh, the translation of the Greek scriptures and the Hebrew scriptures into Coptic. This is, this is one of my favorite languages. I studied this one for a while and uh, wished I could continue that, but, you know, there's other things. There's bills to be paid. But uh, legend claims that, that the, it was the Apostle Mark who brought Christianity to Alexandria in Egypt. So even today in that region, even in the United States, you will have what's called Coptic Christianity. And it has roots in Egypt. And they still have services in the Coptic language. And, uh, you know, you're thinking, wait a second, Egyptian language, aren't those the people that write with birds and snakes? Yeah, at one time they did. But, but then they start to develop a, a little, you know, more common alphabet. And eventually they get to the point that they say, look, let's just do this. Let's keep our language but let's write it with Greek letters. Oh, that's great. And so they kind of come up, they, they borrow the Greek letters, they write it, but they've got a few sounds that you can't make in Greek, so they make up a few extra characters, all right? That's Coptic, and Coptic looks a lot like Greek. Um, we have fragments of Coptic Bibles that go back to 100 and 150 A.D., somewhere in that time period. That you're, you're within a hundred years of the time of Paul writing in Greek, and we've got, we've got actual copies of this that were translated off of that. To me, that's fascinating that we can get that close to the originals. And as the Christian communities grow, then, again, they're going to want to translate more and more scriptures into Coptic. Why? So that these people can hear the gospel and hear the words of God in their own language and they can and, and it's being read in the services and by 250 AD you've got your first official Coptic Bible and and the Coptic church owns this I mean they 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 use this language in their worship which is another interesting thing that the the early Christianity understands that for a people to truly worship God, if they can worship it in the language of their heart, it's going to mean something. You don't have to worship God in a sacred language. You see that. Even though in later centuries there will be debates and there will be controversies that such and such and so and so is the only official worship language, 
early on, the goal is to get people in their own language to hear God's word and to respond to God in their own language. I was, um, when I lived in Texas, I had a, a friend who was, he was the Episcopalian priest there, and, um, and I was asking him about their different worship services, and he said, well, you know, he said, we have official liturgies. That means you, you do, you, you know, they, they can't improvise, okay? They can't put the Lord's Supper here and then, you know, the preaching over here. You've got to follow the script. And then, um, my goodness, the angels are coming back. And so, the, um, anyway, I said, well, what's with that first service that you guys have? And they said, oh, that's... Um, that's in the old Elizabethan English. I said, so it's like King James English. Yeah. The worship service has to be these and thous and, you know, that language. I said, well, well why is that? And he goes, ah, some people feel like that's the only right way to do it. And, uh, and so I'm thinking, man, we have controversies over King James Bible. They got a whole King James worship. So, uh, but that doesn't happen in these early centuries. People are learning and preaching and teaching and worshiping in their own language up the road from all this up to the north you get into armenia and um, you know you can find that on a map still today armenia is the first kingdom to accept christianity as its official faith um, you know everybody thinks well you know wait a second wasn't that constantine yeah but before constantine the king of Armenia, his name was like Tiridates III or something like that. He, in, in the year 301, accepted Christianity. He was converted by an evangelist named Gregory the Illuminator, and he brought the gospel to Armenia. So Armenia holds the distinction of being the very first kingdom to officially be Christian. But the work of, of evangelists in Armenia brings the gospel, and then there's this surge of learning. And uh, I love this guy's name. You have an Armenian uh, uh, church leader about 100 years after that. His name is Mesrob Mashtots, okay? And uh, Mesrob Mashtots invents Armenia's alphabet. He invents this alphabet. He translates scriptures. Now they can read scripture in their own language. And by 414, just 14 years later, after the invention of an alphabet, less than 14 years later, they actually have the Armenian Bible. Now, let me tell you why I like that. This is the same kind of thing that our friends um, in Southeast Asia, the Tigners, this is the same sort of thing that they're doing. I mean, when they, and, and I, I can't remember yet, but I mean, one of the possibilities is, is that they may have to if, if they don't have to do it, other people in that world translation effort, it's very common that they will invent an alphabet. These are people who don't even have a written script yet, but an alphabet is invented for them. Why? So that the gospel can be shared. Look at, the, look at what is amazing about the spreading of God's word is that there's an increase in literacy. People can read. They develop their own language. Now, now, part of this was so that the Armenians, which were often, they were, even in the 400s, they were like on the edge of tensions and battles between the empires all around them. But they said, what if we had our own language and our own identity? And so we have Bibles in this Armenian language. Well, next, just next door is Georgia. 
okay? You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the nation, not the state. Um, some people argue that the state of Georgia speaks a different language, but I don't know. Maybe we got some mission work to do there. Um, the, this, this same guy they claim from Armenia, this Meshrab Mashtots, he went to Georgia, and he invents their alphabet. Now, some people say that, that and that's a, that's a statue of him, by the way. Some people say, well, it, was, it wasn't him, but it's very likely students of his. And again, why do they do this? It's an evangelistic effort. The gospel comes into Georgia. They develop a written script in the, for the Georgian language, and then they translate scriptures into Georgian and we have, we have Georgian um, um, manuscripts, and there have not been very many people who study those manuscripts. One of those is uh, a brother of ours, a, a man by the name of Jeff Childers, who's at Abilene Christian University. I went to school with him. He had an amazing uh, aptitude for languages, and he went and he studied with one of the few remaining scholars in the West working on this language. And again, studying this and knowing this helps us understand the shape of our scriptures and the reliability of it. And then you come to the Ethiopic language. And uh, I've already told you this, that Ethiopia was considered the ends of the earth. And uh, the other story, you know, a lot of people say, well, the, the eunuch brought Christianity to Ethiopia. Sure. I mean, he did in some sense. But there's another part of the story that by the 4th century, you've got two Christian uh, young people, Frumentius and Odysseus, and they were taken captive by Ethiopians, and they were brought to the capital city of Ascum. Now, even if Christianity is in Ethiopia by this time, it's not official, it's not accepted, there are just groups of Christians. But these two young men who had been taken captive and then brought to the capital city get, get the confidence of the rulers, and they preach the gospel to the royal family. And out of this effort, you have, uh, by the, you know, in, in the next few centuries, you have people translating scriptures into the Ethiopic language. Now, this is, um, it was interesting when I was over there, I learned a little bit more about this. This is an old form of the Ethiopic language, and it uses the same alphabet, but it's a different form. It's called Gez. Now, if you saw our videos from Ethiopia, we were in the compound at Makanisa where, we, uh, where they had the deaf school. And all of a sudden, about 4 a.m. in the morning, we start, we, 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 I mean, it's kind of like uh, even more than some um, you know, mysterious singing in the background. We just, we, we hear what sounds to me kind of like some cattle call or something. It's just like, you know, oh, you know, you just don't, you're like, what is going on? The loudspeaker in the church next door, the Orthodox church next door is blaring right into our camp. And uh, I thought, well, it's a good thing that most of these students here can't hear for that reason, but not, you know, it seems inappropriate, but I was thinking, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, and, and and every day at certain times, this goes off. Now, instantly, we think that this is some sort of Islamic call to prayer. It's not. It's the Orthodox Church, a Christian church. But they read scriptures on the loudspeaker to be proclaimed. Now, what's interesting about that is I asked some of our learned men there at the uh, school, and I said, 
So do you understand what they're saying? I said, no. It's like you and I hearing Middle English or something like that. You can pick up bits and pieces of it, but you know, it's like somebody reading Beowulf in the original language. It doesn't really quite make sense to you. And I'm thinking, how ironic that, that, that this, you know, early on, this translation effort was to get the scriptures out there in a language that people could commonly understand, but now it's just become an ancient church language that no one understands. I mean, it's one thing to do that in scholarly circles. We used to, I mean, all of these languages, were, I'm, you know, I'm a bit nostalgic about that because when I was in graduate school, you know, you studied, you had to study Greek, you had to study Hebrew, but they had these other languages out there. And those of us who were nerdy enough to like that stuff, we would go to some of the professors and they said, look, if you can get six of you together to form a class, we'll study Syriac, we'll study Coptic. We'll do. So there was a group of us that just loved to do that kind of stuff. And, uh, but one of them, my friend's roommate, he was the outlier amongst us. Uh, he taught English. <laughs> and, and he taught English in the, uh, in the junior high there in town. So here we are studying all these ancient languages He's teaching English. And, um, and I remember, you know, we were talking about, well, what language would be next on the screen? And, and he, he has the classic quote, this English teacher. He just looked at us all and he said, so many languages and no one to talk to. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the, when you're studying a dead language, that's the problem. He had his work cut out for him. He got us laughing one day because he, he, he showed us the title of one of his students. And remember, this is, you know, uh, rural Texas. And uh, this kid in junior high wrote uh, uh, just a thrilling essay, and it was called The Day I Almost Got Shoot. And uh, I love that. But, you know, for us, it was a study in the past. But when these scriptures were translated, the whole point was to get the language out there in the the common language that people understood. That's the case even with Latin. We often think of Latin as the, the classic dead language. Oh, Latin. You know, no one speaks Latin. But at one time, it was a vibrant language. And you had Christians in Rome, and the Christians in Rome, they were common. Yeah, they could speak Greek. It's the city. You had to speak Greek to converse with people. But when the gospel moves out into North Africa and, and the kind of the, the hinterland of the Roman Empire, uh, most people in those places speak Latin. That's the other uh, common language. So they start to translate scriptures into Latin. And it's really interesting that in the early days in worship, you'll have a bilingual service, Greek and Latin. And most of the manuscripts have Greek on one side, Latin on the other. Why? Because both of those are in use. But in, and, and, and there's a, there, you've heard of the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation, the official Latin translation by a scholar named Jerome. The Vulgate, and the name, it simply means the, the commonly accepted version or the, the common, the typical language. Again, the goal was to keep it simple, to keep it common, something that everybody could understand when they hear it. And again, how ironic that there were debates in later centuries that the only true Christian worship had to be done in Latin. That it didn't sound right if it was in Latin. That just didn't make sense. And you're asking, does anybody understand this language? No, but it sounds right. That is so 
antithetical to the spirit of Christianity. That we are not petitioners in pagan religion with magic words. So the, the, the significance, I've, I've got a lot of these in here, but this is the only one I want to leave you with. The, the, the significance, and we'll come to some of this other later, these themes are going to be picked up. The significance of these ancient versions are not only that they show us, I mean, they get us back to the original writings, and they help us. We've got our Greek that we read, and we put it together, and we say, okay, the original Greek, you know, we can piece it together. It's kind of like doing a... Uh, you know, crime scene, you put it back together, but it's like, okay, it says this. But then you can get this Coptic over here, and you can say, well, we can back translate at that and figure out what they were translating from, and it gives us a pretty good idea of what the original scriptures look like. And what I'm saying to you is this, that, you know, if people, you're going to hear critics, and they're going to say, uh, you know, we don't have the original manuscripts, and because we don't have the original manuscripts, you can't put a lot of confidence in what Scripture says. Yes, you can, <laughs> because we've got really good witnesses to this. I mean, Im- imagine something happening, and the people who originally were involved in the incident are no longer with us, that they're gone. But you have 500 people that witnessed it. And all those 500 people more or less agree. I'd say that's a pretty good testimony to what happened. It's the same way with these ancient translations. They, they're pretty reliable. And there's been work done on this for centuries. We've got a pretty good idea and confidence in the scriptures that we have. Far more than some literature that's out there. But it also is a record of how excited people were in those early centuries, even up into the 4th century, to get the Word of God out there. And get this, they were that excited and that fired up, and it wasn't even popular. It, it, It could cost them their lives. There was persecution. And yet because of that persecution, like the Armenian translation, it was because of that persecution that they say, listen, here's what we need to do. We need to get this translated into the Armenian language. Probably some of what fired that was uh, people who were bilingual and could read the original thought, you know, if we're gone, then they won't be able to read it, so we need to get it in the language that everybody understands. But it also gave them an identity, something to hold on to. Why? So that they could hold on to Scripture in their hearts and the language that they knew rather than some language they were unfamiliar with. You know, when you look back at this and you see that history in that way, you realize this stuff is real. I mean, these people are not just translating dead letters on a page. They're excited about this message. And we've got people that are still doing that today. But whether you, do, whether you use a, another language or, um, or your own, our goal ought to be to share that. So I hope you appreciate the Word of God that you have at your fingertips in so many different translations. You can pick it up anywhere now. You can access it online. That's even been a development since I first started uh, studying scripture and what an exciting time for us to have this access to God's word let's not take it for granted 
Tonight, if you need to partake of communion, it's been prepared in room 100. Uh, We're going to stand, we're going to sing this song, and then Jerry will dismiss us in prayer after this. Lee.